Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to Mile Higher Podcast, episode 195. And today we are taking a look at a really wild case. We're going to be talking about Rachel May Buffett and Daniel Wozniak. Super, super mm-hmm. disturbing, these, honestly. Yeah, definitely disturbing. These two are wild. What these two were willing to do in order to finance their yeah. honeymoon and wedding and just get money, basically, yeah. is just beyond anything. I mean, it's a very, very you know, sick and disturbing case. And what's interesting is they're both actors, but they're yeah. terrible fucking actors. Right, right. I mean, Rachel goes on Dr. Phil at one point. I mean, mm-hmm. it's just this case did get a lot of uh, attention from the media mm-hmm. um, just because of, you know, sort of their backgrounds and their whole history of the relationship. And we're going to dive into all of that. It's it's yeah. a lot to unpack. There's some really strange elements. There definitely are. So that is what we're going to be covering today. Before we get into that, though, I wanted to mention that Kendall and I are vlogging again a little bit. Oh, yeah, we are. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We've been sort of capturing our journey. Let's do it right now. <laughs> I was going to say, we've got the vlog camera back out again, and we've been trying to just capture a journey through... <laughs> This pregnancy and today actually after we finish recording we're going to be going to an ultrasound center yes. to get a 3d 40 ultrasound for the first time which i'm very yep. excited about janelle's joining us <laughs> Woo! it's gonna be so fun Baby. i'm very excited but i just wanted to mention that if you're interested at all in, in kendall and i's personal life and what we got going on beyond our <laughs> All of our content and podcasts, we do have a vlog channel called Mile Higher Life. It's nothing. There's no schedule for it. We just record when we want to and upload when we want. It's very casual, but it's really fun. It is fun. It's fun to share other parts of our life Mm -hmm. with you all other than just crime, crime, crime all the time. (laughs) So it's nice to, you know, just allow you guys to get to know us on a little bit more of a personal Mm -hmm. level and kind of be along on this journey with us. So I just want to put that out there. We'll we'll link that below. But this episode of Mile Higher is brought to you by Upstart, Function of Beauty, Novo, Fuzzy, and Express VPN. More on them later. But we're just going to go ahead and dive right into this case. There's Mm -hmm. so much to to cover here. And this case really revolves around four individuals, two of which we mentioned, Daniel Wozniak and Rachel May Buffett, but also another two individuals by the name Julie Kibuishi and Sam Hare. And so in order to even understand this case and the crimes, we have to unpack each of these individuals' lives because they all sort of lead to to one end. So we'll start with Yuri Kibuishi, who actually went by Julie. She was born February 14th, 1987 to Masa and Junko Kibuishi in Newport Beach, California. And like I said, she went by Julie, and her mom, Junko, went by June. When she first found out she was pregnant, June was so excited to have a little girl. Julie was her special Valentine's Day baby. Julie had two older brothers, Taka and Kazu, and a younger sister named Emmy. As a child, Julie was a softball star, but her true passion was dance. She started taking tap dance lessons when she was five years old and immediately fell in love with it. And growing up, dance was Julie's entire life. She spent long hours every week practicing and competing in dance competitions. And her fellow dancers became kind of like a second family to her. Julie was compassionate, smart, talented, and she was always the first to help a friend in need. 
She had a very bubbly and outgoing personality, and you could tell that she was very passionate about her art. Julie had a real zest for life, and everyone loved her. She attended the Orange County School of the Arts for high school before she started studying fashion design at Orange Coast Community College. She hoped to get an internship with a brand like Quicksilver in the future. Dance was still a huge part of her life, though. Her dance friends remembered that Julie always had perfect form, and Julie always looked beautiful. She would style herself with a flower in her hair, bright, bold makeup, and everything always matched from her makeup to her nails. But she still didn't take herself too seriously. Being unconventional and free-spirited was actually her nature. And she even had six piercings and seven tattoos. And just like her mom, Julie also dreamed of being a mom one day. Since she was born on Valentine's Day, it's only fitting that Julie was a hopeless romantic. In 2010, she was in an online relationship with a U.S. Marine who was stationed in Okinawa. And the two of them were really looking forward to meeting in person for the first time that coming summer. And in one of her college classes, she made friends with this guy named Sam Hare. And she started tutoring Sam in anthropology. Her parents wondered if Julie and Sam were more than friends. But Julie assured them that their relationship was strictly platonic. Sam was like an older brother to her. She said that he looked tough, but he was really just like a teddy bear. So Samuel, or Sam, Eleazar Hare, was born in Los Angeles County on May 29, 1983, to Steve and Raquel Hare. He was their only child, and both of his parents were school teachers and both on their second marriages. Raquel was originally from Argentina, and Steve was a former Marine. He always had a very close relationship with his parents. His cousin Leah was 11 and a half years older than him, and he treated her like a sister, and the two were very close. Eventually, Leah got married, and she and her wife had their daughter, Sonia, and Sonia absolutely adored her uncle, Sammy. Sam was very athletic growing up. He played roller hockey, jiu-jitsu, track, and weight training. He definitely looked the part, too. Sam was very muscular and just had that athletic build. But Sam's teenage years were a little bit rough. When he was 12, he started treatment for bulimia, an obsessive compulsive disorder. But when he was 16, he stopped medication and treatment, and he started attending an alternative high school due to the learning challenges he faced. Sam wasn't a gang member, but one of his friends, Byron, was. When one of Byron's rival gang members was shot to death, Byron was brutally beaten and stabbed to death in a business park by a huge mob. At the time, Sam was 18 years old, and the police accused him of luring Byron to the business park where he was killed. As a result, Sam was arrested, and he spent most of the next year in a jail cell. He and his family always maintained that Sam was innocent. Six months after his arrest, a prison psychiatrist evaluated Sam. He was wearing a suicide prevention suit when the psychiatrist got to his cell, and the doctor ended up writing that Sam was quote-unquote mentally ill and in need of continued medication and treatment. Sam was eventually acquitted of the charges and released back to his family. Steve and Raquel don't like to talk about the case, but they say that Sam was innocent and the court agreed. So that was the end of that. Sam was grateful to be free and with his family, and he proudly wore his devotion to his parents with a heart tattoo on his chest that said mom and dad. After Sam was released from jail, he worked odd jobs before enlisting in the U.S. Army. As a former Marine, Steve was really happy that his son was following in his footsteps. While Sam was at training in Germany, he met a fellow soldier named Teresa. She was having a difficult time there, and there were only five other women in her unit, and a lot of the men tried to hook up with her. So oftentimes, Teresa cried herself to sleep. When Sam heard about Teresa's situation, he promised to help her. He made her PB&J sandwiches every day, 
and he walked Teresa and her roommate back to their door every night. This made the other men back off, and they were incredibly grateful for Sam's help. He looked after Teresa like an older brother would. At the time, don't ask, don't tell was still a U.S. military policy. Gay and bisexual soldiers could be kicked out of the military if they told anyone about their sexual orientation. But Sam made it one of his duties to look out for gay soldiers and make sure they felt comfortable and safe. Eventually, Sam was shipped out to fight a combat role in Camp Keating, a military outpost on the Afghanistan-Pakistan border. Sam felt like it was his duty to take on the most dangerous roles. Other soldiers said that Sam had the heart of a true warrior. His bravery and independence set the standard for the other soldiers, and Sam's selfless nature really showed through during his time in the army. He even ran through enemy fire in order to keep the outpost's power generators going. But after 15 months in Afghanistan, Sam was sent to Germany to finish the last 11 months of his service. Now he and his friends were able to do a lot of traveling they were looking forward to. Sam ended up dating a German girl named Katharina, who lived near the base. After he came back to the States in May of 2009, he had Katharina fly out to California to meet his parents. Katharina ended up making multiple trips out there, and she'd stay with the Hares for weeks and months at a time. And eventually, they even got engaged. They had a pretty good relationship, but they were still trying to figure out where they'd settle down. So they didn't have plans to get married in the immediate future. And like many other veterans, Sam suffered from PTSD after returning from combat. He'd have horrible nightmares of being stuck in a foxhole while enemy soldiers took it over. He'd wake up screaming in a cold sweat trying to reach for a weapon to defend himself with. But Sam was strong, and he had high hopes for his future. He saved his combat pay, which was around $62,000, so that he could attend community college. And from there, he hoped to get an education, re-enlist in the army, rise up the ranks, buy a house, and start a family one day. He chose to attend Orange Coast Community College in Costa Mesa. He also rented an apartment across the street from the college in a complex called the Camden Martinique Apartments. The Camdens were kind of like a dorm, and it primarily catered to young people attending the nearby colleges. It seemed like Sam had everything going for him at this point. Plus, he was outgoing and a good-looking army vet. His personality naturally drew people to him, and his friends said that Sam was absolutely the life of the party. He was always smiling and laughing, and he looked like a big macho guy. But in reality, Sam was just a goofy, teddy bear type. At the Camdens, there was usually a lot of partying and hooking up. It was an easy place to lose yourself in drugs and wild nights. Sam definitely liked to have fun with his friends, but he was still very focused and responsible. Because he had clear goals that he worked very hard to meet. Most of the partying happened by the apartment pool, and that's where Sam met two actors his age who also lived in the Camdens, named Rachel Buffett and Daniel Wozniak. So Daniel Patrick Wozniak was born on March 23rd, 1984 in Long Beach, California to Daryl and Marianne Wozniak. He had two brothers, Timothy and Michael, and his parents were Catholic. His father worked in the aerospace industry. In high school, Daniel was part of the choir, and he acted in the school plays and musicals. His classmates described him as a goofy, handsome, and outgoing person. And Daniel was pretty well-liked by everyone. It was easy to spot him, too. He was tall, confident, and liked to wear his signature Hawaiian shirts. Daniel graduated from high school in 2002 and started studying drama at Golden West College in Huntington Beach. A few years after high school, he reconnected with a fellow theater kid named Allison. Her family had opened the Liberty Theater at a nearby military training base, 
and Dan auditioned for one of their plays. From there, Dan acted in a variety of local theater shows, and he also directed plays and musicals at a local high school, and he babysat for parents associated with the theater. Sometimes Dan would try too hard to impress other people. Allison remembered that he frequently made it a point to pick up the tab at dinner, even if they weren't that close with the people they were with, and even if the bill was like two or three hundred bucks, he'd still pick it up. But acting didn't pay much, and Dan couldn't hold down a job, so he was chronically low on cash. He'd get fired from his jobs working at cell phone stores after they'd accuse him of stealing. Dan also liked to drink a lot, especially when he was out with his friends, and sometimes he could get obnoxious. But his friends said that he was pretty happy and a harmless drunk overall. Allison's father, who owned the theater, remembered that Dan always seemed like he needed to be the center of attention at all times. Dan casually dated a few other girls at the theater, and those relationships never really worked out, though. His exes saw him as more of a friend, and he didn't have a lot of game when it came to dating. Allison said that kissing Dan was kind of like kissing Mickey Mouse. Oh, jeez. Oh, nice. What does that even mean? I don't know what that means. Like, because you're just so big? Like Mickey, <laughs> Mickey Mouse. Mouse isn't that big. Uh, well, Mickey Mouse's mouth is kind of big, isn't it? <laughs> I think they mean it because he was like he's a big so, friendly dude. Yeah, and he's like, like it was a romantic. Animated. Oh, I was thinking yeah. more like physical, but no, physical I don't think characteristics. He felt though. like Mickey Mouse, but <laughs> <laughs> you never know. He's like, oh boy, that's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. pretty good. I'm Dan. <laughs> he kind of had the theater vibe about him. Oh, okay. you know, the, I see. The um, very kind of. I don't know. Animated. Sure. You know? Like kind of over the top with his moves. Charisma. Okay. Okay. I don't know. That makes more sense. It's kind of like kissing a character. Okay. That's okay. what I'm guessing she meant. So, kissing Mickey Mouse. Not the physical, not ears. That's and- insulting. <laughs> and on his MySpace page, Dan wrote that his heroes were God, my parents, and the men and women in the military, and any single person who is willing to take a stand and fight for what's right. And his parents were very supportive of his acting career. They made it a point to attend each and every one of his performances. But their relationship with their son sort of changed after he met a woman named Rachel Buffett. So let's play this little theater promo video outtakes that is out there on the internet that includes Dan and Rachel, I believe. Mm. And it'll just kind of help give you a better sense of their personality and kind of how they portrayed themselves. Okay, so these clips are from outtakes from a 2009 video promo for the play The Green Room, in which Daniel Wozniak co-starred with his uh, fiance, which we'll find out, Rachel Buffett. Hi, my name is Dan Wozniak. I'll be playing the role of John Davison, Orange Cat. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> okay, take it again. Hang on. I'm playing the role of John Davison, Orange County Theater. God, Dan, I'll just say it, Orange County. I can't say theater. <laughs> Don't say that. You need to walk away from that. Okay. Hi, my name is Rachel Buffett. We're playing. <laughs> Do it again, please. <laughs> this is a come see us. <laughs> I like that one, dude. Come see us. <laughs> Why does that make me cringe so Yeah, hard? that was very cringy. Yeah, they thought that was way funnier than it like, actually Yikes. Was. Yeah. Uh, I like so, the music in the background. It was like very that good. made it even more horrible, <laughs> horrible production, honestly. <laughs> the music is way too loud. So as you heard, you know, you heard Daniel, but you also heard Rachel's voice in there. So Rachel May Buffett was born on July 20th, 1987 in Orange County, California, to her parents, Marianne and David. She also had two brothers, Noah and Nathan, and a little sister named Hannah. 
The Buffets were a pretty Christian family. The parents homeschooled the kids at their house in Seal Beach, California, and Rachel described her upbringing as sheltered. From the looks of it, her family members were all pretty artistic, and her brother Noah liked to sing and play guitar. She went to community college to study acting, and she got a job acting as Princess Ariel in Disneyland. The role seemed fitting for her because she, I guess she kind of looked like Princess Ariel. She was pretty, she was a petite blonde girl with big blue eyes and a button nose. And later she got a job working as a damsel at Medieval Times. That's, that's fun stuff. Rachel also liked to participate in local theater productions. Some people at her theater said she was kind of a shit stirrer, but other people said she was sweet and mild-mannered. Rachel met Daniel in 2005 while they were working on a play. She initially thought that he was a really friendly and helpful guy, and they started hanging out regularly. And a few years later, the two started dating. They eventually decided to move in together, but they were worried that their parents wouldn't approve. So they lied to them. Rachel and Daniel moved in with Rachel's brothers. And Rachel would make sure that Dan was out of the house whenever her parents came to visit. Rachel and Daniel ended up getting engaged in 2008. Daniel proposed with a wedding ring that he said was his grandmother's. And people at their theater said they became sort of a power couple. And their nickname became the Royals. The two of them were inseparable, but some people thought that Rachel was controlling and possessive of Daniel. People definitely got the feeling that Rachel wore the pants in their relationship. Neither of them were employed, though, and acting definitely didn't pay the bills. So money was frequently a big problem in their relationship. The couple was constantly trying to scrape enough money together in order to pay their bills and stay afloat. In 2008, the couple was evicted from their house in Long Beach. Daniel's family didn't like Rachel, and when they started dating, they heard from their son less and less. It seemed like Rachel was driving a wedge between Dan and his family, and they didn't see him much anymore. And he actually ended up dropping out of college. His parents had only met Rachel once or twice, and they didn't even know he was engaged until long after everybody else did. Dan had actually created fake emails under his parents' names and given them to Rachel's parents. For whatever reason, he didn't want their parents talking to each other. Dan claimed that his parents didn't like Rachel because they wanted him to date a girl with a good job, like a lawyer or a doctor, and that's why he kept his distance. But the Wozniak family said that the truth was Daniel stopped talking to them after he was caught stealing money from the family. Dan was lying and telling them that he was attending college classes so that he could secretly pocket their tuition money. He stole cash from his parents multiple times and even tried to sell one of their cars. Daniel's parents didn't kick him out, though. They still wanted him in their lives. But Daniel wanted to marry Rachel. So he left home and cut all ties with his family. He stopped taking his family calls sometime around November of 2009. Before he stopped talking to him, though, Daniel stole his father's 38 caliber revolver and took it to his apartment, unit D110, at the Camden Apartments. He and Rachel moved in there in February of 2010. The couple's beach wedding was scheduled for May 28, 2010 in Long Beach. Daniel didn't invite any of his family. He did invite some of his friends from the Camdens, though, including Sam Hare. And Sam was friends with a lot of people at the Camdens. He'd also met a fellow military man named Reuben in one of his classes, and the two of them became pretty fast friends. And then Reuben also became introduced to Julie as well, and they were also friends. Julie hung out at the Camdens pretty regularly. And that's where she got to know Sam's friends, Dan and Rachel. The couple lived only about 50 yards from him. Julie befriended Rachel in particular 
The two of them, of course, bonded over their shared love of the performing arts. But on the other hand, Ruben did not like Daniel from the get-go. He thought he was fake and he bragged too much. He tried to avoid him whenever he was at the Camdens. He actually told Sam that he didn't trust Daniel right after they met. But Sam trusted other people a lot more easily than Ruben did. Sam was a very open guy and he made friends pretty quickly. So he didn't share Ruben's concerns. Then on May 15th, Dan was arrested for driving drunk. He called up friends for bail money from jail. A mutual acquaintance called Sam to see if he could help out. And that's how Daniel found out about Sam's combat pay. Daniel ended up getting the bail funds from somewhere else, but he didn't forget that Sam was still sitting on some money. Sam actually chatted with Daniel in the hot tub one day after he'd been arrested. Daniel was complaining about his brief time in jail and being his open and empathetic self, Sam wanted to relate to Dan and he told him about his own experience in jail as a teen. There was something about this conversation about Sam's past and remembering his combat pay that sparked something awful in Dan's mind that night. Dan and Rachel had a lot going on in May of 2010. They were finishing up a three-month run of the play Nine with the Hunger Arts Theater Company in Fullerton. Daniel played the lead role and Rachel played his leading lady. Local critics gave Dan's performance great reviews. The couple was also busy planning their wedding. The date, May 28th, was coming up pretty soon and they were definitely starting to feel stressed about it. Daniel was pretty concerned that he wasn't going to be able to pay for everything. Both Rachel and Daniel were unemployed and sometimes he would blow up at her over her spending habits in front of their friends. They had to borrow money to pay their rent and Daniel was writing checks he couldn't cover and his bank balance was in the negatives. They were about to be evicted from the Camdens if they didn't come up with the money they needed. Around this time, Dan and Rachel met a man named Chris Williams after one of their performances and Dan asked Chris to loan him $3,000 almost immediately after they met. He explained that he was low on funds and he needed quick cash. Eventually, Chris agreed to lend Daniel $2,000 as long as he paid him back by May 21st. Chris told Daniel that he had mob ties and he got the money from some not good people. So he definitely needed to get the money back as soon as possible. But all this was actually a lie. Chris just wanted to make sure that Daniel would repay him. On May 21st around noon, Julie sent Rachel a message on Facebook. She told her that she missed hanging out with her and she congratulated her on her upcoming wedding. Rachel wrote back and said that she was really busy, but she promised that the two of them would hang out soon and that the wedding was only a week away. That morning, Rachel said that Dan was very distressed and acting super weird. He was so upset that he was hyperventilating. It was like he was about to have a heart attack. Chris was supposed to come by and collect the money that day. Rachel asked Daniel what was wrong. And he was being really dodgy about it at first, but he ended up telling her that he needed to go upstairs and visit Sam at his apartment. Daniel left shortly after that and came back to their place with Sam. Sam and Daniel talked on the porch, and Daniel seemed like he had relaxed a little bit. He told Sam that he was just stressed out about his financial problems. Sam suggested that Dan join the Coast Guard because they would take care of his housing and give him a decent salary. Sam had also agreed to help Daniel move some stuff for him that day. And 10 minutes before they left the apartment, Chris stopped by to get repaid. Dan told him that he'd be right back with the money, and he and Sam left. And Chris figured that they'd be back soon. But minutes turned to hours, and Dan still hadn't returned. In the meantime, Chris sat in the apartment and chatted with Rachel while she browsed through Craigslist. She told him that she was passionate about acting, but she didn't know if she could make a decent living doing it. Chris started wondering why Dan was taking so long to get back. 
He was expecting to get paid back that day. And finally, after three hours of waiting, Dan came back alone. Things started to get weird, and Dan threw down a stack of bills in front of Chris. He was shaking, and he had this sort of wild look in his eyes. And the stack of bills he threw down only totaled up to $400. Chris asked if that was all the money that they had, and he handed Dan a $20 bill so the couple could buy dinner. There was a really uncomfortable feeling of tension between Dan and Rachel in that apartment, and it definitely made Chris feel weird and kind of sketched out. He tried to calm Dan down and tell him that everything was going to be okay. Then he put the stack of bills in his pocket, and Dan looked a lot more relaxed when he did that. But still, Rachel was staring at Dan like she was really, really pissed. The whole thing gave Chris a really bad vibe, and he just decided, you know what, I got to get out of here as soon as he got the chance. A little bit later, Chris noticed that he had a missed call from Daniel. He called back, and Rachel answered the phone. She told him that he had accidentally dropped a $20 bill on the floor, but Chris told her that he purposely left that money there for them. She told him, no, you really should come back and get it, but there was no way Chris wanted to go back there. He got a strange feeling about the whole thing. Yeah, it's almost like his intuition was telling him, like, yeah something bad's going to happen if I go back to this apartment. He felt like she was luring him back. Mm -hmm. So he said, no, you know, hang on to the 20 bucks. It's for you. And I'm not coming back. It sounded like something was really bothering Rachel. Chris asked if everything was okay. And she told him that she wasn't worried about the money. She was worried about something else now. She didn't explain what that was any further. And then she hung up the phone. Back at her parents' house in Irvine, Julie was going about her day as normal when she started getting some weird texts from Sam around 5 p.m. And the first one read, Can you come over tonight at midnight alone? Going out for a bit, very upset, need to talk. Then Sam texted again, saying, Please, no sex, I need to talk to someone. And Julie responded saying, LOL, ooh, Sam, we're like bro and sis, no sex. Sam then explained, I'm hurting with some bad fam crap. I can't be alone. No sex. Please, I'm begging as a brother. Julie was a kind, selfless friend, so of course she responded, Yeah, that's fine. Sam, I'm here for you, like family. Sam then asked her if she was going to let him down, and she replied, I have never let my friends down when they need me. That night, Chris saw Rachel and Dan perform, nine, and he congratulated Rachel on her performance, specifically for the part where she fake cried. But Rachel said that the tears were real. She told him that she had been crying about everything that happened that day. Meanwhile, Julie met up with her brother, Taka, and his fiance at a Thai restaurant in Long Beach. She was going to help them plan their wedding. Taka asked her to be a bridesmaid, and Julie was thrilled. The group eventually left dinner and went back to Taka's house. On the way back, Taka handed Julie her bridesmaid's tiara. Julie proudly wore it the rest of the night. She started getting more weird texts from Sam's number at around 11 p.m., though. He was asking if Julie was going to be coming over soon. So she told Taka that her friend Sam needed to talk to her about something, and she was going to stop by his place on her way home. Taka said that was fine, but he told her to be careful and shoot him a text when she got there. Julie told Taka that he'd like Sam. He was like a big brother to her, and she promised to text him from the Camdens. So she then left. Around midnight, Julie arrived at the Camdens and texted Sam, Hey buddy, I'm here. I'm walking to your place. Then as promised, she texted Taka, I'm here, don't worry. And her next message said, Uh-oh, doesn't look good. Crying with a sad face. The next morning, Julie's mother noticed that her daughter hadn't come home. 
and it was the day of her little sister's senior prom. Julie would not have missed that. She tried texting and calling her daughter, but nobody picked up. So June called her son to see if Julie ended up sleeping at his place. But Taco was confused when he learned that his sister hadn't come home that night. He told his mom that Julie had gone to see Sam that night. June tried calling her daughter dozens of times, and there was never an answer. Julie would never just disappear like this, so June called the Irvine police. And of course, the cops weren't too concerned at first. They told June that her daughter was 23 years old. She'd probably been drinking at a bar and she'd turn up soon, but she didn't buy all of that. It didn't sound like her Julie at all. Meanwhile, Sam's family was also getting concerned. Steve hadn't heard from his son in over 24 hours, and all his calls were going straight to Sam's voicemail. And it was not like Sam to fall out of contact with his father for very long. He was supposed to spend that weekend with his parents as well, and he never showed up. So Steve drove out to Sam's apartment in Costa Mesa. Ruben had also been trying to get a hold of Sam that day as well. Sam had missed a beach party that he was supposed to come to. Ruben tried calling him multiple times, but he never got an answer. Finally, though, someone picked up the phone. It was a guy's voice that Ruben didn't recognize, and the guy said, hey, bro. Sam never called him bro, so he knew something was up. Ruben said, who is this? The man responded, I'm busy right now. I'm having a lot of problems with my family. Ruben said, what are you talking about? But before he could get an answer, the man just hung up. And nobody picked up when Ruben called back. Steve arrived at Sam's place at around 9 p.m. and used a spare key to get inside. Once inside, though, Sam wasn't there. But when Steve walked into the bedroom, he saw something truly horrifying. It was Julie's body, and it was kneeling over the side of Sam's bed. And she had a gunshot wound in the back of her head. Her pants were also cut open and pulled down to her knees. And there was a message written on Julie's shirt in black ink that said, All yours. Fuck you. Steve immediately called 911. He sobbed and told the operator that there was a dead body in his son's apartment and that his son was missing. While Steve was on the phone with 911, one of Sam's friends, Jake Sweat, walked in. Jake was drunk and Sam hadn't shown up for the plans they had earlier that day, so he had come by to check on him. Steve didn't want Jake to see the bloody scene in the bedroom, so he led him out into the hallway while they waited for the police. The cops arrived and found Julie's body inside the apartment. Her purse was still sitting on the kitchen bench, and there was an invitation to Dan and Rachel's wedding still sitting on the counter. The officers asked if Sam owned a gun, but Steve told them over and over again that Sam couldn't have done this. Still, with Sam missing and Julie's body in his apartment, he became the number one suspect in her murder. When the police discovered Sam's prior arrest record from his teenage years, they became more convinced that Sam was a killer. Since he was also a trained military veteran with PTSD, it seemed pretty obvious to them that he was the culprit. The police then went to the Kibuishi house and broke the news to her family. A detective said that Julie's body had been found in Sam Hare's apartment. June immediately began screaming, No, that's not my daughter. It's not her. None of it felt real. But they told June that they had found her daughter's ID. And when she heard that, she fell to the floor, sobbing uncontrollably. She asked the police to see her daughter, but they didn't let her. They did tell her that they suspected Sam murdered her, but none of it made any sense to June. How could this have happened? Everyone in the Camden started to hear the news. People started to wonder if Sam was missing because he'd killed Julie. But Sam's friends and family did not believe that Sam was responsible for that crime. 
Julie was his friend, and Sam would never hurt anyone that he loved like that. He was a gentle, caring guy, and Julie was like a little sister to him. Rachel claimed that she and Daniel found out about Julie's murder at a cast party on the night of the 22nd. When they went back to the apartments, they started to suspect that Sam might have killed her. One of Sam's military friends, Miles, believed that Sam and his family were in danger. He even slept on Steve and Raquel's couch with a gun in case anyone tried to come into their house and hurt them. But the police put Sam's picture and info on wanted posters and spread the word that he was a murder suspect. The local news broadcasted the All Points Bulletin and warned that Sam was armed and dangerous. So the investigation is really starting to heat up. The police are really going to start looking for Sam and try to find him because they believe that he is the you know, person that did this at this point. So before we go any further, we're going to take a quick ad break and we'll be right back. It was all hands on deck for the police to find Sam. And in the meantime, Steve started an investigation of his own. Sam had given Steve his bank password in case of an emergency. So Steve signed in on May 24th and he saw that money had been moving out of the account. Someone was withdrawing cash from ATMs and charging things to the card. So Steve, he was like, this is very weird, and gave this information to the police. The Costa Mesa Police Department had actually already been monitoring Sam's accounts, and they had actually started staking out some of the places the card was used. Steve also decided to do his own stakeouts. One of the locations was a pizzeria in Long Beach, and on the 25th, Steve kept an eye on the pizza place for about an hour, and checked for Sam's car at nearby motels, but he didn't find anything. At the time, Steve didn't know it, but he'd actually seen Tim Wozniak, Dan's brother, in the pizza parlor. Tim looked upset, and he was pacing around inside while he spoke to someone on the phone. Steve called Jake's roommate Dave that day, and Dave told him that he had last seen Sam on the 21st with an actor who lived in the building, and the two of them were planning on setting up backdrops at the theater that day. So that's how Steve first came into contact with Daniel Wozniak. He actually called up Dan and asked to speak about his son, and Daniel said he was happy to help. Daniel told him that Sam mentioned he was having problems with women and his family. Steve immediately knew that he was lying to him. He had a feeling that Daniel had something to do with Julie's death. So he went to the cops and told them that he thought Dan was dirty. Jake told police that he talked to Dan and Rachel at Jake's apartment after Sam went missing, and Dan told him on the 21st that he and Sam moved stuff at the theater and then came back to the Camdens. Then Sam left his apartment with a man in a black baseball cap. At first, Dan said he was a short Mexican guy, but then he said it was a short white guy. Jake tried to ask Dan more questions, but Rachel looked at Dan and said, it's time to go. The police were able to pull up surveillance photos from an ATM that Sam's card was used at, and the pictures showed a young kid with a skateboard. It wasn't Sam taking the money, but they needed to figure out who this kid was. So the next day on the 26th, the police showed up at Noah's apartment and questioned Dan and Rachel. Dan said that he had last seen Sam on that Friday afternoon and that he had actually left his apartment with a man in a black baseball cap. He didn't know who the man was or where he and Sam were going. While they questioned Dan, Rachel came outside and asked if everything was okay. Dan's hands were noticeably shaking and the detective asked Rachel to go back inside and they talked to her next. When they finished with Dan, Rachel gave the detectives an identical story. Rachel said she saw the man with Sam too, and she didn't think he lived in the complex. She indicated that she was in the apartment with Sam, Dan, and this unknown man. But Chris Williams saw Daniel come back alone that day, and Rachel didn't mention Chris Williams to those officers at all, just completely left that out. After all this, detectives secretly started following Dan after he left Noah's place. 
He drove to a teenager's house in Long Beach, and the teen handed him an envelope. After that, Dan left. The police waited by the teen's house, and 20 minutes later, a pizza delivery guy showed up. The teen took the pizza and headed to the party across the street. At this point, the cops actually pulled over the delivery guy, and the delivery guy said the pizza was ordered from Echo's Pizza using Sam's ATM card. So the police geared up to raid the house. They dispatched multiple squad cars and even a helicopter. They expected to find Sam hiding inside the house, but instead they found a 16-year-old kid named Wesley Freilich and his friends. The kids were finishing up the pizza when Wesley went outside to check on all the commotion from the helicopter. When he opened the door, he was shocked to see officers pointing their guns at him and telling him to get on the ground. They arrested him, and he was very confused. And then they took him in for questioning. Can you imagine being that kid? Like, no. Like, clearly, there was some orchestration here by oh, yeah. Dan, most likely. Absolutely. And That'd be really he had probably scary. no idea what he was actually mm-hmm. sort of covering for. And he's just like, I just got this pizza. Like, Yeah. I don't know anything else, but that would just be, mm-hmm. that'd be a crazy situation. Just to totally experience. unexpected. Just yeah. open the door and bam. You got SWAT teams ready to raid the entire house. That's crazy. It turned out Wesley was on one of the surveillance photos caught taking money out of Sam's account. He tried to play it off like he didn't know what the cops were talking about. But when they told him the card was tied to a homicide investigation, he started to cry. Wesley said that he didn't know who Sam Hare was, but he admitted to using the card. And then he told investigators that he got the card from none other than Daniel Wozniak. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm sure he's like, okay. Once they tell him this is tied to a homicide investigation. Yeah. Wesley's like, I'm ready to sell sell this guy out. Yeah, for I sure. mean, it's one thing to go use an ATM card to take money out. That's not yours. But to then realize that this might be covering up for a far larger mm-hmm. crime. Mm-hmm. And good thing this kid gave them Daniel Wozniak. So he explained that Dan told him he was working for a bail bondsman and needed a favor. And one of Dan's boss's clients had skipped bail and Dan needed a third party to withdraw money from that person's card so that he could give it to the bondsman. Dan even had paperwork that he showed to Wesley that made him believe that this whole thing was legit. Wesley and Dan had been friends for more than six years and they actually met at the same theater and Dan had become like a mentor to the kid. Wesley trusted him a lot so he agreed to withdraw the money for him. Starting on the 21st, Wesley took the maximum daily amount, $400, and gave it to Dan each day. Dan reminded him to wear a hat and sunglasses whenever he took the money out to hide his identity. Wesley also said he probably wasn't supposed to be ordering pizza with the card, but he was still doing his job, so he thought it was fine. That day, he'd handed Daniel an envelope containing $400. So that night, Daniel had his bachelor party at a Japanese restaurant in Huntington Beach. The wedding was just two days away at this point. It was a pretty relaxed party, just a few of Dan's friends, you know, just drinking some sake and eating some sushi. When all of a sudden, the police burst into the restaurant and arrested Daniel for bank fraud. Daniel complained that the police had waited to arrest him until after he had paid the check. At the station, police began questioning him. Daniel explained that Sam had roped him into a fraud scheme. They planned to have someone withdraw money using Sam's ATM card. Then Sam would report the card had stolen so the bank would reimburse him. He said the whole thing was Sam's idea. Dan said he agreed to do it because he needed money for his wedding. They chose Wesley to withdraw the cash because he was a minor, and they thought, you know, he wouldn't get in as much trouble if he were caught. But before the scheme could really take off, Sam knocked on Dan's door at 8 a.m. on the 22nd, and Sam told him they were in trouble. They needed to go somewhere else to talk. 
So they hopped in Sam's car and drove around. And Sam told Daniel that there was a dead body in his apartment. As soon as Sam left Dan's apartment the day before, he started drinking a lot and taking drugs because he was stressed out about his family. And then he texted Julie for a shoulder to cry on. And when she came to the apartment, Sam asked her to have sex. And Julie said no. And Sam then proceeded to shoot her twice in the head. And of course, Dan is telling the investigators that he was just totally shocked by this news when Sam told him. Sam also told him that he did it because he wasn't in his right mind that night. But then he threatened Dan and told him that if he ratted him out, he'd come back and kill both him and Rachel. According to Dan, Sam told him to withdraw money from his account and funnel it to him so he could escape and live on the run. In return, Sam would give him a few thousand dollars for his wedding. He then dropped Sam off at a shopping center in Long Beach, got rid of Sam's car, and didn't see him again. And Dan carried out the plan and didn't tell anyone because he was scared of what Sam would do if he didn't fall through. Dan admitted that the man in the black baseball cap was a lie, and he apologized to detectives for telling them that story. He said he was scared that Sam would kill him if he told the truth. And when police asked him where Sam was now, Dan just said, I don't know. The detectives told Dan that they were going to take a cheek swab for him so that they could eliminate him as a suspect. Dan relaxed, thinking that the detectives believed his wild story. But his attitude changed when the detectives asked if they were going to find his DNA on Julie's body. Dan said they wouldn't, but the detectives pressed him, and they asked him if he was in the room when Julie was shot. This made him angry, and Dan actually shouted at the detectives that Sam was threatening his life. What did you expect me to do? It didn't seem like the interrogation was getting anywhere. They took a break and then brought Dan back into the interview room. He still wasn't telling the truth, but when they told him he was under arrest for accessory to murder, the reality of the situation started to sink in. Dan told investigators that he'd tell them anything they wanted to hear as long as he could be at his wedding on Friday. That's most important, yeah, right? Yeah, most important. Got to make that wedding. It got to be at the altar, man. I'll tell you anything you want to hear. Yeah. Really, dude? How about a bunch of lies? They told him, of course, we just want to hear the truth. But Dan refused to tell them where Sam was unless they agreed to let Dan go to his <laughs> wedding. That's honestly wild. I know. But the detectives said that they weren't going to bargain with him and things started to stall at that point. Dan told detectives, here's what I'm saying. I'm saying each one of you and Sam has killed my chance of happiness. The interview continued and Dan was becoming more and more exhausted. Finally, he angrily told them, Yes, I saw the fucking body. Is that what you want to hear? He claimed that he saw two gunshots in the back of her head. But at first, he told them that Sam told him he shot Julie twice. The detectives caught Dan in a lie. He wouldn't have been able to see that Julie had been shot twice just by looking at her. Meanwhile, while this was going on, Rachel was sitting in her apartment with Jake, Dave, and Miles when she heard the news. Miles noted that none of them seemed shocked when Rachel looked up from her phone and said, Dan got arrested. He got the feeling that they already knew the arrest was coming. In Miles' opinion, Rachel was just acting plain weird. She seemed oddly calm about the whole thing, which made Miles suspicious of her. Rachel later said that she was calm because she didn't know how much trouble Dan was really in. Soon after Dan's arrest, though, police showed up at Rachel's place. They asked her to come and talk to Dan at the police station. In the interrogation room, Dan told her that Sam killed Julie, and he helped cover it up. The detectives were shocked by Rachel's lack of emotion. It was like she had no reaction to this horrifying news that this girl she was friends with was brutally murdered. And the rest of their conversation was strange. It sounded like she and Dan were feeding off of each other. 
as if they were rehearsing lines from a play. After Rachel talked to Dan, she told the police about how he was acting on the 21st. She said he'd been freaking out, and he said that he owed money to some bad people who needed to be repaid that day, or else they'd break his legs. When police asked if Rachel knew anything about Dan's crimes, she said this, Hell's no. Hell's no. No. That's that inspires a ton of confidence in that answer. Hell's no. What is wrong with these people? So after that, Rachel left and Daniel spent the night in jail. Rachel's friend Violet, who also lived at the Camdens, drove her to Noah's home. Rachel started telling her family that Dan had been arrested and that she was calling off the engagement. Her family started working on canceling the wedding plans that night. Oh, that's most important. Yeah, God. Violet then drove her to Daniel's parents' house. Only Daryl was home, and Rachel told him that Dan got arrested. But apparently, Daryl acted kind of mellow when he heard the news. It was like he wasn't really hearing what Rachel was saying, or that he wasn't surprised or something. Rachel ran into Daniel's brother, Tim, and his girlfriend on her way out. She told Tim about Daniel's arrest, and when she did, he got really nervous and started fumbling around with his phone. According to Rachel, Tim had some sort of weapon on him, so she bailed. And after she left the Wozniaks, Dan called Rachel from jail. Rachel said, what did you do? Dan told her, I helped Sam cover some stuff up and helped him get some drugs. That's it. I didn't murder anyone. Rachel said, babe, why on earth would you cover for him? And Dan replied, because we needed the money. Rachel launched into some theatrics after she heard this. She said, no, we never need money. We need to be good people and just have each other. She also told Dan that she had just run into Tim, and now she needed to talk to the detective because Tim had evidence on him. Dan said, then I'm doomed. Rachel asked, did you know that Tim had some evidence? Dan said, yes. Rachel still insisted that she was going to talk to detectives. Dan told her not to, and then he said, that can't be found. I'm dead. I'm really dead. Rachel replied and said, babe, you're already dead. I don't know. That's some suspicious talk right there. Yeah. I think there's more there. There's more behind that than what they're trying. They're trying to kind of speak in code mm-hmm. in a, little, a little bit. Definitely. Dan told Rachel to come to the police station. He said, I have to tell the truth on what I did. And I think you know now what it is. And it's bad. Imagine the worst. And that's what I did. Then he told Rachel that she was never going to see him again. Around noon the next day, the 27th, Daniel told the jailer that he needed to talk to the detective again. They rushed back and found Dan in a holding cell. He was agitated and very upset. The detective brought Dan into an interview room where another investigator was already waiting for them. They read Dan his rights and told him to go ahead and say what it is he needed to say. And the first words out of Dan's mouth were, I'm crazy and I did it. Trying to pull that insanity card immediately of course well now he's like what's my next plan of action yeah. i'm just gonna act insane before he even confesses right. though he's like, i'm crazy <laughs> i'm insane but i did it god yeah it's it's crazy how people think that that's mm-hmm. like gonna be the better route to go the saving grace yeah, yeah or somehow is gonna get them off of a, of a major crime like this <sighs> the detective asked him what he had done and dan said i killed julie and i killed sam he told police that on may 21st he lured Sam into the empty Liberty Theater by asking him to help him move some stuff. And the two of them went up to the attic and Daniel asked Sam to move a piece of furniture. Then when Sam turned around, he shot him once in the back of the head. 
And Sam fell to the ground, looked up at Dan and said, I need help. I just got electrocuted. And Dan tried to shoot him again at that point, but the gun was jammed. So he quickly pulled the jammed round out of the gun. Then as soon as Sam looked up at him, he shot him again in the head. Dan then stole Sam's wallet, his ATM card, his cell phone, and then just left his body in the theater. After that, Dan met up with Wesley and tricked him into withdrawing money from Sam's account. And in the end, Dan was able to take around $2,000 from him. Like Dan obviously was going for that larger 60 some thousand dollar. Yeah. That he was just, he was just eventually, he was going to try to drain the account via the ATM. Mm -hmm. Because that's the only method he had at that point. Exactly. Over time. But it's like, you got 2,000, like, it's just not a well thought out plan at all. It was just such a waste of life. Yeah. God, for 2,000 bucks. It's so sad. So around 5 p.m., he started using Sam's cell phone to text Julie and lure her to Sam's apartment. He performed in nine that same night in the same theater where he just committed this murder. How? How? Isn't that crazy? That just goes to show what kind of person this guy is. Like He he has the ability to just, I mean, he's an actor, so he's able to just put on the face and and do it. But it's like. What is the episode that we were watching? Is it a Dateline or a. Dateline, yeah. yeah. If you want to check out that episode, it's pretty interesting because it has clips of him that night at the theater performing. Yeah, like nothing happened. How can you and go Sam's about? And Sam's upstairs. Oh, above my them. God, literally up upstairs. And he's like the star of the show. Yeah. Oh my God, it's where he just committed a murder. Insane. Yeah. Have you seen Chicago? Uh, no, I haven't actually. Kind of happens like that. This woman commits murder and then goes and performs. Oh, really? In Oh, interesting. You would really like that movie. It's very interesting. Or that play. Yeah, you're right. Sorry, it's a play first. But there's a movie of it? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, Yeah. that sounds very similar. So during the whole play, his castmates have no idea that Sam's body is just sitting above the very stage that they're performing on, and their lead actor was the one who killed him. And that night, Dan was in his apartment trying to get Rachel to go to sleep when Julie texted Sam that she'd arrived at the Camden's. Dan used Sam's key to get inside, and he met Julie at the front door. Then he told Julie that Sam needed to talk to her. And then he went to another room to load his gun. Then he came back to the living room and told Julie to look at something in Dan's bedroom. When she walked in, Dan shot her in the head twice. Dan wanted to make it look like Sam was involved in some sort of love triangle with Julie and her online boyfriend. So he needed to stage the scene so it looked like Sam killed Julie in a jealous rage. To Dan, Julie was just a decoy. Originally, he was going to try and lure over Sam's friend Petra, but she didn't answer the phone. So he cut open Julie's clothes to make it look like she was sexually assaulted, and then he wrote that note, all yours, fuck you, on the back of her shirt and black magic marker. Julie was also still wearing the tiara that Taka gave her. The next day, Daniel went to Rachel's brother Noah's house to grab an axe and a saw. He drove Noah's truck to the theater and used the tools to dismember Sam's body. Then he discarded the limbs in the nearby El Dorado Park. The detectives asked Dan what was going through his mind when he dismembered Sam. And Dan said, I was actually smiling and laughing. And he said he didn't know why. That's scary. The detectives asked why he killed Sam. And Dan held his hand in his hands and said, money and insanity. So he's really trying to play up this, you know, crazy act like like the Joker or something. And after he said that, he let out a crazed laugh. Daniel told the police that he had committed all these crimes to finance his wedding and honeymoon. And he said 100% of the motive 
was money. It was also pretty clear that Daniel had planned the murders well in advance, as investigators found Google searches on his computer from May 17th for things like how to hide a body and quick ways to kill people. Noah actually made a Facebook post that weekend jokingly complaining about Dan borrowing his truck. He deleted the post when he realized what Dan had actually used his truck for. Noah ended up being charged with accessory to murder after the fact the same night Daniel was arrested. He pleaded not guilty and the charges were later dropped. He claimed that Dan duped him, just like he had duped Rachel, and he had nothing to do with the murders. That day, May 27th, Dan attempted to commit suicide in prison. He was taken to the hospital with self-inflicted head injuries as he was smashing his head against the cell walls. According to Daryl, Dan went into a coma and he spent two days at the hospital before he was returned to jail. The same day that Daniel attempted suicide, police found Sam's naked, headless body in the theater's upstairs loft area. Dan had actually chopped off his hands and the upper part of his left arm, and it was his attempt at trying to hide Sam's identity. The police combed through El Dorado Park for Sam's limbs, and on May 28th, they found his severed hand and arm in a shallow hole covered with leaves. But they actually didn't discover Sam's head until June 5th. And it turns out Rachel was right about the weapon she mentioned Tim had on him the night that police first interviewed her. It actually was the gun that Daniel had used to kill Julie and Sam. Daniel had given Tim a box after the murders, and he instructed him not to open it. He told him to burn it or get rid of it. And Tim later called Dan to ask why he had items inside of it, which pissed Dan off. In the box, there was a backpack full of evidence. The bag contained Sam's foreign currency that he had acquired while he was overseas with the military, Daniel's blood-stained clothes, the gun, and tools that he had used to dismember Sam. Police found out that Tim had these items after Dan was arrested. They charged him and his girlfriend for being accessories to the murder after the fact, and they both pleaded not guilty, posted bail, and returned home. Police think that Tim may not have known that Dan used the gun in the murders. But they don't think that Tim believed Daniel had the gun for entirely innocent reasons. A few weeks after the murders, Taka and Steve met up to compare notes. But when police found out that they had a meeting, they told them not to see each other again. Steve told them that he didn't care if it was against the rules. Dan killed Julie and Sam, and the two families deserved answers and support. Julie was cremated wearing the tiara her brother gave her. God, it just breaks my heart thinking about that. And in August 2010, her family went to Japan to scatter some of her ashes in her ancestral homeland. June keeps Julie's ashes in her bedroom, and when she passes, she wants her daughter's ashes mixed in with hers. Sam died just shy of his 27th birthday. He was buried with full military honors. And it's so infuriating thinking about how Dan tried to frame him as the one who committed this crime after yeah. horrifically murdering him, and that wanted posters were put out of him it's just it's it's so upsetting for his family i mean the fact that dan uh, like dug in far enough into sam's past to like figure out that oh he has these things that happened Mm -hmm. that he got arrested for murder before so this will be really easy for me to frame him i mean he thought this out pretty well as far as like orchestrating sort of the the Mm -hmm. people in it but it's like it's just so sad that there's i mean Sam did absolutely nothing wrong. If anything, Sam was a great friend that just cared about him that probably would have been willing to give him money if, you know, if he asked for it. Was he was recently trying to help him, telling him to join the Coast Guard. Yeah, giving him advice. 
Mm. And just like that wasn't enough. And that's what that's the big thing here is like, is it just Dan or is there pressure or something else mm. coming from elsewhere? And that's where Rachel comes into play. So we're going to yeah. get into the trial, the, you know, the fact that justice does get served in this case and the results of the trials and what the jury found right after our last break. So as they should, the DA's office pursued the death penalty against Dan based on the vicious nature of the murders. He was assigned a public defender because Daniel's parents did not give his legal defense any financial assistance. Rachel visited Dan for a few months after his arrest, and he told her that after his suicide attempt, he had a vision of God. Apparently, he'd become a Bible-reading Christian in jail. Rachel started to recommend scripture passages to Dan, and she even brought one of her pastors to one of her visits. Eventually, though, Rachel brought one of her guy friends in to see Dan in jail. At that time, she walked up to the plexiglass, gave Daniel two middle fingers, and said she never wanted to see him again. And after that, she never visited him since. While Daniel was awaiting trial, he actually went on the TV show Lockup. He told the interviewer that he was a really good guy, and everyone who knew him knew that. He also said he didn't kill Sam and Julie, and he planned on fighting the charges. He said that he missed Rachel and he still loved her a lot. He also claimed that he found God, which a lot of people found weird. Dan always used to make fun of his parents' Catholic beliefs. Steve thought the show was way too sympathetic towards Dan. It made him sick to watch his son's murderer smiling and laughing. Dan, again, was just doing what he did best, being an actor, and was just putting on a show. In the meantime, the families were waiting for the trial to begin. Steve and Sam's friends created a Facebook group called Sam's Buddies, a space for friends and family to post memories of Sam and share updates about the trial. Sam's military friends kept in close contact with his family. They visited them often, sent Raquel flowers on Valentine's Day, and invited them to their graduation parties. Sam was supposed to be the best man at his friend's upcoming wedding, and the groom asked Steve to be his best man in Sam's place. That's really sweet that he did that. His dad is so cute. Mm -hmm. Yeah, his dad is awesome. The Liberty Theater was already struggling, but after Dan's arrest, those struggles got a lot worse. Parents pulled their kids out of the theater program, and the murders spooked some of the guests out of attending the shows there. So the Liberty Theater ended up closing in 2012. And in May of 2012, after police spent two years collecting evidence, a grand jury voted to indict Daniel. He would face two murder charges as well as special circumstances charges for committing multiple murders and killing for monetary gain. Daniel was arraigned the next morning, and he pleaded not guilty. Steve ended up visiting Daniel in jail multiple times to try and get more information about his son's case. Daniel has apologized to Steve, but Steve said he didn't believe it for a second that Daniel was genuinely remorseful about killing his yeah, son. Yeah, I wouldn't either. This guy's, this guy's insane. He's clearly not. On November 20th, 2012, Rachel was arrested and charged with three counts of accessory to murder after the fact. As they handcuffed her, she cried and asked the cops about the statute of limitations. Wow. That doesn't, that's kind of a sign of guilt if you ask me. Like, are these charges beyond the statute of limitations? Yeah. Like, who asked that? It's so weird. But they said murder doesn't have one. Some people wondered why the police took two years after the murders to arrest Rachel. And they said that they didn't want to arrest her as an accessory right away and then find out she was a perpetrator later. The Buffett family rallied online to have Rachel's bail reduced from $100,000. 
20 days after her arrest, she was released on a $50,000 bond. And that's when Rachel's little PR tour began. She did multiple interviews with the media insisting that she was innocent and that Dan duped her into believing that he was a good person. Rachel said that she didn't know anything about the murders before they happened, and she had no involvement in Sam or Julie's deaths. But the Hares and the Kibuishis firmly believed that Rachel was involved in some way, and she knew more than she was telling the police. June called Dan and Rachel two peas in a pod, in fact. She said that Rachel cruelly took advantage of her daughter's kindness, and she deserved to be in jail with Dan. On February 5th, 2013, Rachel appeared on the Dr. Phil show to defend herself. Steve made an appearance as well, and he told viewers that he wanted Rachel in jail for her lies. Overall, the Dr. Phil appearance didn't make Rachel look good. Viewers didn't seem to buy her story about being innocent. But according to Rachel, Dan was the monster, not her. She said that God knew her heart and knew she was innocent. More than five years passed from the time that Dan was arrested to the start of the trial. His public defender, Scott Sanders, wanted the death penalty taken off the table. He alleged that the Orange County prosecutors and sheriff's deputies committed misconduct in their use of jailhouse informants. He argued that all of them should be removed from the case. It became pretty clear that he was going to do everything in his power to get the trial delayed as long as possible. Prosecutors accused him of using dirty tricks to have the judge postpone the trial over and over again. Scott even tried to file a 500-page motion with 20,000 pages of exhibits. He and the prosecutors began a long series of bickering in court hearings. The first judge on the case actually had to recuse himself because of the endless delays. Scott had pissed off the judge to the point where he felt like he couldn't judge the case objectively anymore. This delayed the trial yet again. Scott, of course, tried to get the next judge recused as well pretty soon after he started presiding over the case. He actually wanted to have every Orange County judge recuse himself and have a judge from another county preside over the case. Both the Kibuishi family and the Hare family felt like their anguish was becoming unnecessarily dragged out. It's so unfair for families to have to wait on all these stupid delays. Yeah, I know. It takes oh, forever, yeah. and it, the toll it takes on you mentally. All they wanted was for this nightmare to end in some way and for their kid's killer to be behind bars. It's so hard because while they were waiting for the trial to begin, June and Masa were both diagnosed with cancer and they pleaded with the judge to stop the delays because their suffering was getting to be too much to bear. June begged the defense to consider how the postponements were affecting the victim's families. Steve went to more than 192 court hearings before the trial even started, waiting for the trial was emotionally exhausting and everyone was starting to get really frustrated. Except for Daniel, who looked kind of upbeat and carefree at some of his hearings. On December 9th, 2015, Daniel's trial finally began. None of the Wozniaks came to watch the proceedings. The only person that came for Daniel was an acquaintance that had become fascinated with the case. This woman actually started a blog called Daniel Wozniak is my friend and started writing to him in prison. Eventually, this anonymous blogger started visiting Dan in jail and showing up to the court dates. She said that she's going to turn her blog into a book, and the blogger still writes and visits Daniel to this day. I don't get these people that get obsessed with killers and yeah. like want to be friends with them or want to have weird. a relationship with them and write a book about it. It's like, why? I know. It's so weird. I don't get it. It's just kind of glorifying them in the end. Yeah. The defense made no opening statement and called no witnesses at trial. 
Dan's conviction seemed pretty inevitable, and Scott probably wanted to save Dan's defense for the penalty phase. Wesley testified against Dan at trial, and as a teen, he couldn't bring himself to accept that his friend had committed such awful crimes, but now he was going to be helping prosecutors get Daniel convicted. Tim testified against his brother as well. He told the court that Dan said the items in Sam's backpack were from a murder that someone else committed. Dan told Tim to get rid of the items, but Tim panicked and gave the gun to a friend. That friend turned the gun into the police. And the jury deliberation was short, just a little over two hours, and then they came back with their verdict. On December 16th, 2015, Daniel Wozniak was found guilty on two counts of murder. After the conviction, Dan entered the penalty phase, which was set to begin on January 4th. A jury would decide whether or not Daniel would face the death penalty. Daniel's father died that month at the age of 70. Neither he or his wife came to any of the proceedings against Daniel. During the penalty phase, jurors heard heartbreaking victim impact statements from Julie and Sam's loved ones. They tearfully described the unending pain that Daniel had put them through. And we have a couple little clips from just a news uh, broadcast about this that are pretty powerful. My only regret that in this state won't let me kill this coward myself. There's no word to describe our pain and anger and frustration we have been going through. That will never heal or go away. It's just sad. It's sad that there's not more. You can just feel his father's anger. I totally, I totally am with him there. Like, that's how I'd feel too. Just for fucking no reason. These two people. Yeah. Ugh, sick. The defense also argued that Rachel had manipulated Dan into committing the crimes. Scott also argued that Rachel had some responsibility for the murders. And because of that, the jury shouldn't sentence Daniel to death. The prosecution responded by saying that Rachel's involvement didn't take away from the fact that Dan did what he did. The DA scoffed, saying, is this the I was whipped defense? The jury didn't accept Scott's argument either. And on September 23rd, 2016, they recommended that Daniel face the death penalty. And the judge formally accepted the recommendation. Dan's sentence was automatically appealed. In the state of California, all death sentences are automatically appealed. Also, judges virtually always concur with the jury's recommendation. And then on December 15th, Tim, Dan's brother, mm-hmm. pleaded guilty to being an accessory to murder after the fact, and he was sentenced to three years probation, and the charges against his girlfriend were dropped. About a week later, on the 22nd, Tim was arrested and charged with domestic violence. According to the police, Tim punched his girlfriend in the chest, grabbed her wrist, and bit her arm while they were driving. It's pretty clear that, I mean, just based off of Tim's behavior as well, that Tim and Dan, I mean, definitely not good good people at all i mean no you question how these people were raised evil man and even their own parents are basically disowning them yeah on september 5th 2018 rachel's trial started violet the friend that drove rachel around on the night that dan was arrested testified against her violet said that when dan talked to them about being the last person to see sam rachel said shut up shut up that's not what happened your messed up memories are screwing up my story oh my god Mm. Chris also testified against Rachel as well. He had no doubt in his mind that Rachel knew about the murders. And he also believed that if he had gone back up to the apartment that day when Rachel called him saying that he left some money there, that they would have killed him too. He was a loose end. And Chris had seen Dan leave with Sam and come back alone. I I think, I believe that 100% that they were going to kill him too to tie up that loose end. 
Rachel never mentioned Chris Williams to the police in her initial interviews with them. Chris had called police and told them about his weird encounter with Dan and Rachel after he heard about the murders. The investigators were surprised. Rachel hadn't even mentioned seeing Chris that day. So they called her in for another interview to explain herself. And she told them that she didn't say anything about Chris because she was scared for her safety. She said that she didn't know if Chris knew anyone bad. And Rachel was worried that if she told the police about meeting him that day, someone would come after her. Makes no sense. Police weren't so convinced that this was the reason why she didn't say anything. Rachel's a really bad actress, honestly. She is. Even on the yeah, on Dr. Phil, she's terrible. They they asked her like point blank yeah. in some interview, like, Yeah, are you are you telling the truth or something? Are you a truthful person? And she's like, I think so. Yeah. To the best <laughs> of my abilities, I'm to the best of my abilities. Like nobody answers those questions like that. It's definitely worth it to go check out those Dr. Phil episodes. We obviously can't include any of it. Yeah. CBS is really strict about copyright, but Yeah. But it's pretty interesting. I mean, it really puts into perspective who Rachel is. Definitely. She's a liar. They gave Rachel three different lie detector tests and she failed all of them. The detectives believe that Rachel is trying to protect herself and cover for Dan and that she actually knew more than she was telling them. A cast member from the Nine play testified that on the 22nd, before Julie's body was discovered, Rachel was emotional at that night's performance. Rachel looked upset and she told her that my friend is missing. I think she's missing. I think she's dead. And I think my friend did it. I mean, that's that's just, just, just stupid. She's an idiot. She thought that wasn't going to come out like. Oh my God. And it just shows her need for attention that she was willing to say that knowing yeah. what kind of trouble that could get her in or. Yeah, really incriminated her. Yeah. And it seems very, very likely that she may have plotted this with Dan. Oh, yes. It really does. And that night, Rachel was able to cry on cue. Her castmate said that Rachel was never really able to do that before. And they thought Rachel's tears weren't just good acting, though. That she felt guilty about something. And she was an emotional wreck the entire night. Both Rachel and her defense team, of course, dismissed these claims from her cast members. The prosecution also focused on other important inconsistencies in the story she told police. The investigators thought Rachel was lying to them from the get-go. The first inconsistency was the man in the baseball cap Rachel reported she saw. That man didn't exist, and it was the same fake story that Dan gave the police. According to Rachel, she never told the police that she saw the baseball cap man herself. Dan told her about the man, and she trusted Dan. So she repeated that story to police without really thinking anything of it. Investigators also wondered why Rachel was parroting the same line about Sam having family problems that Dan gave them. These family problems clearly never existed. Again, Rachel said she was just taking Dan's word for it, or she must have heard that from someone else. In one of her interviews, Rachel also stated that she didn't know that she and Dan were in deep financial trouble. That obviously wasn't true either. She knew Dan was borrowing money and they were facing their second eviction, this time from the Camdens. Rachel even started looking into working as a stripper to make extra cash. Her defense attorney argued that the inconsistencies in Rachel's story were understandable and innocent mistakes, that she was just stressed out about her wedding, the murders, and Dan's arrest, and their financial problems. But the defense didn't work because a jury found Rachel guilty on September 12, 2018, and as a result, on November 8th, a judge sentenced her to 32 months in jail. Not long enough. Not long enough at all. And she was actually released from prison in 2019. That's nothing. That's crazy. I mean, it, it's it's hard because they have to, it's hard to prove 
yeah. with like concrete evidence yeah, in this I case that she mastermind minded this whole thing but it yeah. seems very obvious that yeah. her and dan concocted this plan in 2019 governor newsom placed a moratorium on executions in the state of california and he said that this would last for as long as he was in office and the moratorium angered many victims families whose loved ones killers were on death row at the Orange County DA's annual victims rally, the Hares and the Kibuishis spoke out against the governor's decision. The state of California has not executed an inmate since 2006. It's unlikely that Daniel will be executed anytime in the near future. In 2021, Dan was actually moved out of the San Quentin State Prison to the Salinas Valley State Prison as part of the Condemned Inmate Transfer Pilot Program. It's possible that he'll work there to raise restitution money for his victims' families, while he waits to be executed. But if you ask me, he belongs in San Quentin. That's a really, really tough prison, and that's where somebody like Dan belongs. The Hares and the Kibuishis know that they may not see his execution day come, but they're just happy that they have some sort of closure now, that Dan can't hurt anyone else. He's behind bars, and these two families keep in touch to this day. Every day, June wears one of Julie's rings on a necklace. She wears Julie's earrings and a blood-stained hairpin that she was wearing when she died. Julie had gifted her mother a mixtape before she had died, and June drives around and listens to the mixtape whenever she needs to to feel close to her daughter. Steve continues to play golf, and Raquel is learning to play different instruments. They know that Sam would have wanted them to enjoy their well-deserved retirement. The Hares deeply miss being able to hug their son. They take comfort knowing that he will always be in their hearts. So Just, sad. <sighs> Just such senseless yeah. murders. I mean, there's just no re there's no reason for it. Nope. Just so that Dan could get some money. Probably for their wedding and honeymoon fund. How sick is and that? Just like, I Willing just, to take someone else's life for that? Right. I mean, I just, I, I think God. it's sick that Rachel got away with such a short mm -hmm. sentence. Like, I really do think when she was I think involved. she at least spurred him to take it upon himself to figure out a way to rob Sam. It's yeah. clear that something clicked when he heard that mm -hmm. Sam had that money yep. saved away and he was going to figure out some way to get it from him. And the only thing that came to his mind was kill him. Just and make full on narcissist, completely selfish. I mean, even from the clips, you can just tell the guy, yeah. the guy's like, just thinks he's something special. Yeah, he definitely did. But yeah, we want to know your thoughts on that one. And how involved do you think Rachel was? Yeah, and do if you think, all. yeah, I mean, it was pretty clear that she was involved. I don't know if clear is the right word. It's not, it seems obvious. Well, she was a but accessory after the fact. Mm -hmm. I guess it's just how involved you actually Right, she like was, was she the, the one orchestrating the plan here. or not? Or, I think she was, but I think people will disagree. I think based upon the things that she said to other people that she knew that this was going to go down, that she mm -hmm. knew that somebody was going to be murdered. Yeah, especially talking about it at... The play before she went on yeah i guess that could be considered hearsay but plus dan's parents said that after dan started you know got into a relationship with rachel that he really changed mm -hmm. like she and that she controlled control everything it. yeah and she of course rachel's mindset is like i just want to get married i just want a honeymoon and you know i just want to do this and dan had no way to make it happen so you can tell how obsessed they were with the wedding especially that dan in the interview rooms is like i'll say whatever you want as long as i can go to my wedding right that was you got to promise me 
That's all that matters to no, them. Like you're not going anywhere, dude. So stupid. Yeah, just such senseless acts for yeah. literally nothing at, at the end of the we day. We really just, feel for these families. Abso- just absolutely. Terrible. But yeah, let us know your thoughts. Let us know if Rachel deserved a harsher punishment and Dan uh, sentence the right one, mm-hmm. the death penalty. And we'll see if yeah. that ever even happens or if he'll just spend his whole life on death row and I definitely like he'll never hear be executed. your opinions on death penalty, California, specifically for Dan's case. Do you think it was warranted? Yeah. I know people have varying opinions on that. Definitely. But that's where we'll wrap up today. Make sure you're subscribed to us on YouTube as well as Spotify. Make sure you're following us there. That is the premier spot to enjoy the Mile Higher podcast. Uh, but until next time. Keep taking your mind a mile higher. higher.